We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello, and we co- welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Flatman. I'm honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and the president of Fire Consulting International. Um, I am also um, today coming to you from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, where I'm on a cell phone, so I'm sorry if, you're, if we get some interference, um, but then uh, this is all about technology. And this is Donna Ingram. I have about 30 years in, in fire and fraud and am a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators. And we have two great guests today, and thanks for joining us at Speaking of Fire. Our pleasure. And Mike must have cut out. I'm going to go ahead and talk about our two guests. Um, we have Donna Beyondich. Um, she is a she manages claims operations. Uh, she has a proven track record promoting customer centric claims handling, industry leading best practices, and legal compliance. She successfully manages diverse uh, diverse workforce. She leads strategy development and oversees property and casualty claims. She's dedicated to customer satisfaction, maintaining brand loyalty, and effectively aligns business and human capital needs. She's analytical, metrics-focused, detailed, and results-driven, and she has a solid commitment to continuous learning. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Donna. (laughs) And we also have uh, another guest, uh, attorney William Smith. He is a first- and third-party coverage attorney and has been since 1990. He's successfully litigated complex coverage cases for insurer clients in 22 states. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the National Underwriter, Best Review, National Law Journal, Business Insurance, Risk Insurance, NBC News, and he has a developed reputation concerning the identification of emergency, emerging, <laughs> emergency, I'm so used to that word, emerging insurance issues, including nanotorts, climate change, mold exposure, coal ash, and hydrofracking. He's been a featured speaker at DRI, the, the Institutes, plus the CPCU Society, ABA Tips, and the San Francisco Board of Marine Underwriters. His primary focus is liability coverage, first-party coverage, and fraud rescission cases. He's been recognized by his peers as a super lawyer from 2012 through 2017, and he participated in the United Nations Annual Conference of the Parties on Climate Change in Poznan, Poland. He's an author of the award-winning Climate of Uncertainty, a balanced look at global warming and renewable energy, and it's Amazon's highest-ranked book on climate change in 2010. Thanks for joining us, Attorney Smith. Donna, first of all, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I really look forward to the, the discussion, although 
my partner Mike Smith would have got a kick out of your introduction. I'm actually Bill Stewart, and he's Mike Smith. So sometimes that happens. Last names get confused. But he would uh, he would be laughing. And the other thing about that introduction, I heard someone once say that's a uh, uh, that's a um, an introduction that my uh, my dad would have loved and my mom would have believed. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I apologize for the mix up. Yeah, but you know what? That's I'm I'm here. I'm here, and uh, you know, Bill, I'm I'm really thank you for being there. I'm sorry I was off for a while. Um, we had to get some technical stuff. I hope you can hear me, uh, guy. Yeah. And and uh, I, we have two great guests here, and as Donna had pointed out, and you can see that uh, we have a, a a wealth of knowledge. Um, and this is brought to you uh, by us for for the. People on the street and the firefighters that don't understand that uh, that insurance companies are not a big um, uh, brick building on the East Coast. They're actually made up of human beings, and uh, and and attorneys are are also um, are looking out for not only insurance companies, but they're looking out for insureds. And and this is what we're going to we're going to talk about today. And uh, and and Donna, that I uh, I asked her to be on the show, Donna, but um, so so that she could explain to you, Donna Biondich, uh that uh, about uh, what happens when um, I, an insurance company um, you know gets a fire claim and uh, and how they train their people and how they 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 treat you properly. So Donna, would you talk to us a little bit about what happens when there is a fire claim? Uh, then, then what happens? All right, Mike. Uh, thank you again for that introduction. Um, and so, just kind of in keeping a little bit with your your overarching theme here with the customer focus, that really is one of those things that, for as long as I've been in the industry, you know, thirty five years, started right out of college and and kept right on going, um, and entirely uh, my entire career in claims. Uh, some folks may, you know, react initially with you have to be jaded by now. And I, I really try to uh, keep uh, not only myself and any of the, the folks that I work with, staff and otherwise internally and externally, very focused on the fact that at the end of the day, you know, any loss that is suffered, uh, whether it's first party or third party, is a loss of some sort and generally a, you know, an experience that's, starts off being a very uh, negative experience because, again, something's been damaged, someone's been hurt. And we, we have to do everything we can as an industry to remember that and to remember the sensitivity and the empathy that we enter into these uh, claim handling with. And, again, with that, we know there is fraud. We're not naive about that. That does take place, and that, that kind of is a vicious circle of what creates uh, that jaded viewpoint, but to the extent that that's not the frequency that we're encountering, um, you know, by and large, there are good people making claims that they're entitled to make uh, that we really should be operating from that, you know, that customer-focused uh, standpoint. And so when we get that first report, we really have to be, you know, sensitive to what's happened uh, we have to kind of, I, I think this is where our industry kind of self-inflicts some of that image of, you know, mm-hmm. negativity or adversarial, um, because we really should start those claims with a conversation where our responsibility as a, as a claims team is to train and educate. And it's really to talk about, you know, what the process is now going to be. 
talk about, um, you know, the expectations, uh, talk about why we need the things that we're going to be asking for, you know, why the questions, uh, why the, the paper information, the, the documents we might be asking for, and then to talk about the policy contract. You know, the, the, an insurance claim is derivative of a contract, and we both have obligations under that contract. And I don't think that's talked about enough in those first call or two, uh, you know, so that, that, again, the person making the claim understands, you know, why we're asking and why we need uh, the information that we are, we are seeking. I want to jump in there real quick, Donna, because uh, I I actually was a producer as in, during my path of career, and you're exactly right. It, the explanation of of what the what the person is purchasing, what it's covering, and then if there is a claim for the claims examiner to explain those things. And yesterday, interestingly enough, on LinkedIn, I actually saw a video. Uh, that was posted by a public adjuster um, of a man that was upset over a, it was a water claim, not a fire claim, but that went viral, and it was being posted and reposted, and I thought, boy, there's the negativity. Yeah, it's just constantly, you know, reinforced, and, and to me, again, those are the, the more, you know, minimal encounters, but it's enough, and it certainly is sensationalized enough, you know, you think of something even as simple as a, as a, I don't know if it was a Disney or Pixar movie, The Incredibles, and, you know, claims adjusters are portrayed as deny, deny, and that's, you know, claims are paid way more than I think, you know, the general public would understand, and certainly the dollars associated with that, um, and, and that is the right thing. That's the why people purchase insurance. Right, and Donna, do you, do you think the biggest challenges are in the insurance, insurance industry? Are, are they the training of, of the people, or is, are they education of the clients, or what do you think it is? Because I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a, a combination, uh, Mike. I think to the extent that, you know, staff is certainly, and if you read, you know, any, any of the insurance companies' websites, you know, certainly one of the values and one of the core values and things that are taught is all about customer and, um, you know, customer training and, and um, you know, delivering on that promise to pay under the policy. But I honestly think a little bit it gets lost in, um, in the sense of urgency or the, you know, occasionally the caseloads, you know, where the adjusters are just trying to work through their claims and they just presume people know more than they do and more than they should even at the beginning of a claims process. And they just jump right into, you know, that investigative part and, and, and just right away, you know, asking questions. And I think that kind of sets the tone um, a little bit more adversarial than one would like or one would think because the company really should be more of an advocate uh, for that policyholder in a first or third party situation. Right. And you're, and you're, um, every insurance carrier is kind of bound by also insurance commissions uh, throughout the United States and, and, uh, and, and uh, the, the um, insurance companies, many have SIU special investigations units that are, are assigned, either immediately assigned to fires or come into them later. 
And what is your opinion about, well, I know I'm an origin and cause investigator, okay, so it's our job to go out and determine what causes fires because a lot of people don't know what causes fires in their house. Um, some of them are found to be uh, accidental and some of them are found to be incendiary and some of them are found to be lightning, for crying out loud. So, um, so what is your feeling, Donna, on um, the involvement of, first of all, SIU, but the, the I know it's always been my opinion that uh, that the sooner you get some an attorney involved in 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 one, the better it is. Uh, it kind of speeds the process. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because again, we're committed to doing very thorough, expedient, you know, and accurate investigations. And for any decisions to be made. That information, you have to be able to, you know, really be able to be talking from a, a perspective of certainty uh, before you start making decisions on, you know, coverage and payments and things like that. And certainly adjusters don't have those expertises. The, the role of the adjuster really is to bring those expertises together at the right times, you know, for the right reasons on claims. And that's the same with whether it's an expertise of bringing, you know, a, a fire investigator, you know, to, uh, to the claim or, you know, an outside uh, counsel to the claim, you know, whatever makes sense. But that, that is the, the biggest role of an adjuster, uh, you know, on the investigation is when they don't have the expertise recognizing that and bringing that into the claim process uh, at the right time before they start, you know, and, and at the time of making decisions. Right, and and so that's I know I've worked with you um, before. I you're, I know you're still you're doing. Um, uh, I mean, kind of like consultant work, aren't you now um, in the insurance industry still? I am. Yep, just very recently uh, venturing out on my own now to do, but very similar work, you know, and and direct involvement with claims uh, on a very routine basis from from a variety of perspectives, litigation and otherwise. Okay, well, before we go on to Bill, because I know uh, I worked with you and Bill on, on many cases, uh, um, and we want to get Bill's perspective on, on how soon to get in, and also uh, we're going to talk about examinations under oath, but um, what, how, how would somebody get in touch with you if they needed your expertise, uh, Donna? Yeah, so I, uh, the name of my company, keeping it relatively, relatively simple, I keep my... Uh, my creative resources for my claims handling, but it's just DMB uh, Consulting, and uh, I'm located uh, here in Georgia. And uh, so I can be found on LinkedIn uh, easily enough. Okay. All right. Now, Bill, how about, uh, how about you? And you're, you're an attorney. You've worked in the insurance industry. Donna's been in it for 35 years. You've been working with the insurance industry, no doubt, since, uh, since early in your career. Uh, what's your feeling about uh, when do you enter it and, and, and what happens from there? What, what does an attorney do here? Yeah, so from a, in, in the context of a fire case, I, I think I, I just echo Donna's sentiments and rather than repeat it, we'll just give a, you know, sort of an example. So the, the, a good reason to get counsel in early on in a fire case is because you, you, you hire a great expert. The expert goes out and gives you some ideas to uh, what the origin and cause are. Then you have to make some, some hard decisions and you have to make them pretty quickly. You've got likely someone who wants to get back into business and they want to get back into business quickly. 
Um, but you don't want to have a spoliation problem where whatever evidence of the of the cause of the fire is um, is lost forever. So you need to target pretty quickly. Is there a landlord? Are there you know other entities that were involved in the construction of the apparatus or the maintenance of the apparatus that you believe caused the fire? Are there going to be third party claimants that are you know going to want to do their own analysis of of the fire? So. You really need to understand both the, the origin and cause and the legal ramifications are the same before you can even start to make those decisions, everything from defense and subrogation. Um, and so I think it really does make sense to, to get counsel in early on, as, as Donna said. And can I just, this is Donna again, uh, just kind of mention, you know, for those that may not may not really appreciate, but the order in which you retain those individuals is, important as well and Bill you might want to elaborate on that because we have seen you know the mistakes made where an adjuster gets you know they are there trying to do their investigation expeditiously and they go ahead and they call in you know call in an expert and that's probably the right thing to do because again they don't have the expertise but in the end you know being sensitive to when they call in that expert and how they may protect that uh, that work product Bill. Yeah, so there's really two elements to that. One is it's a team effort, and the more interaction there is between the different disciplines that are there to either protect the insured and or the insurance company, you know, the the, the more interaction, the earlier the better. That's a good thing. But in, just in terms of the timing, there are also important privilege issues and strategic issues uh, that come into play, and, and it's not certain in all instances, but it's far more likely that the privileges and protections that exist under the laws will exist if the attorney has been retained and that, that you know, part of the, uh, the conversations are really about the legal issues that arise out of uh, the law. So, again, from a, just from a uh, team effort, everybody on the same page early on, you know, disciplines, sharing viewpoints to the protections of afforded later on in the claim, it does make sense to, to get the attorney on board first, and then the attorney can be involved in, in bringing the expert on board. Mm-hmm. And, well, okay, and then uh, I know there's things like Fair Claims Practices Act, and and, uh, and so the adjusters are acting properly, to uh, and uh, their policy for their company, and, and there's a there's policy language that has to be interpreted. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that people don't realize that uh, that go on in fire claims, and uh, this is why I you know I, I have no objections ever to having an attorney involved very early, you know, and and the fire investigators then report uh, to the uh, to the attorney and the company on what's going on, and uh, and then uh, subsequently there. There are other things that go on, but um, most of the, the other, most of the claims are they. This is to you, Donna, and then uh, we're going to be taking a break in a little bit. But um, this to you, most of the claims are indeed uh, settled and relatively quickly, are they not? They are, and that's a, that's exactly you know the right thing to happen. Um, you know, from that standpoint, the, and and I think part of why claims get a little bit more delayed or, or drug out, you know, than they should be is, you know, if you put yourself in the insured shoes and you have a fire and then the next thing you know, you know, there's an expert showing up on your door and there's an attorney in the background somewhere without a thorough explanation of why this is necessary and why it's in the best interest 
of the insured, you know, to get that determination quickly to protect, you know, any evidence that might be on site for a subrogation claim or otherwise. If, the, if the, those actions are taken without that time and effort of explaining, you could see why an insured might shut down or kind of, you know, withdraw a little bit from the process. And then it just, you know, the, the investigation takes on kind of this piecemeal life of its own, you know, send us these records and then they send you those records and then you have five more questions and then you say to the insured, you know, send me these records and then they send you those and you have five more questions. And so there's, there's a, you know, a very inefficient way that the process then takes place because the insured's not quite sure what, what they're, you know, now being maybe what they perceive as accused of or involved with or so you can see how that, that takes on a life of its own if not handled well with communications and explanations. Um, and, and again, it might not be about the insured at all. It's about what subrogation you know, opportunities may exist at another time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, and Donna, uh, uh, Donna I, I'm going to have to say, Donna I, you, you uh, work as a producer uh, in, in an insurance agency. Did you get a lot of questions when somebody had a... A claim, or did they did they worry about the did they ever call up and and say anything about the adjusters or what? Yeah, and and there's different uh, different companies have different policies, but if there is a captive agent agency, usually the producers, the agents are the first line. It quickly we they do the intake of the information, but yes, and and in the larger companies are trained to not answer claims questions. That's not an agent's job. They don't do claims. Everything goes to the claims department. Um, but as I was stated, stating earlier, uh, we can answer questions about the policy itself, but that's, that's it. So it's, it's, it's definitely good, and I, sure, I know Donna 100% agrees and, and Bill, too, that anything pertaining to a claim needs to be handled by the claim department. Right, but Donna, as you know, you know, the insured, when they're not sure what's going on or why things right. are taking place or why it's taking so long, right, the first place they go is back to their agent. Right, and so, and, and that is where the agent can answer things uh, about the coverage, but not anything to do with about the we can even explain the process, a claims process, but nothing to do with the actual payment. Yes, and so, um, and Donna, you're uh, Donna. I, we're going. You're going to have to, since I'm at a, in a hallway of a, of a courthouse. You're going to have to. I don't see the time, so we're going to need to take a break soon. Do we not? Yeah, and this is probably a good breaking point, so we can go ahead and take a break, and then we'll just have a little bit longer second half. That's fine. Sounds good. Okay, so so when you come back, come back to breaking, uh, speaking of fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Before the break, we were talking about different processes and things, and Bill, I wanted to turn to you, and um, and Donna said it well about having uh, tools in our toolbox, and I thought might you might want to explain to the listening audience what is an examination under oath and what is its purpose. Sure. So it's one of the uh, my favorite things to do in the practice. It's... Um, it's, it's one of the few things we get to do where there's no backstop, there's no court, and it's uh, kind of a little bit like the Wild West, and it's a, a very enjoyable and, and difficult to predict uh, a function of, of my job. So if you just kind of start from the, from the treetop level, that there are these two basic types of insurance we've talked about today. One's third-party insurance, and that's a lot like what it sounds like. A third-party sues the insured, and then the insured tries to get coverage. But there's also this thing called first-party coverage, and that's when the insured itself circumstance, often a fire, um, comes forward and, and seeks, seeks coverage for itself. And just about every first-party policy has an examination under oath uh, provision, and these provisions go back at least a century, uh, probably beyond. And what they, they require is the rather significant step of the insured coming in, being sworn under oath, and, and answering questions while under oath, and so it's a it's a significant expense. It's 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 rare, um, and it's conducted generally when an insurer, for whatever reason, really feels like they need to to button down the facts. And so I've heard lots of people say that well, insurers only take EUOs when they suspect fraud or they suspect arson. I think that's definitely an overstatement. I, I think EUOs are conducted for lots of reasons, but. Uh, I think it's fair to say that when an EUO is noticed, uh, the insurer uh, believes that 
there's something maybe unusual about the case or something that they really need to, to get to the bottom of. So it's undoubtedly a very important event in the history of a, of a case. So if you could just kind of picture in your mind's eye, right, the insured comes in, sits down, and a- answers a bunch of questions. Um, and in a fire uh, case, a lot of that would be background. Then there would be a, a ton of questions about the financial condition of the insured, you know, questions about the cause of the fire, the insured's uh, insurable interest in the property, maybe prior losses, claims, suits, things like that. Um, where the insured was physically on the day of the loss, questions like, you know, why did you purchase the policy? Did you just increase your limit? Um, things like that. And and then there's also a question if it's an incendiary fire, um, are there any other explanations as to what um, might have started the fire? And this is always an important topic because to the extent that there's evidence of vandalism in the area or, you know, even even threats or enemies or things like that, they can provide another reason why an incendiary fire may have started. So that, that's sort of just the, what a... Um, uh, what an examination uh, looks like. And j- just in terms of why claims get denied after an EUO, it is really surprising to me, you know, just, just speaking about fire claims only, it's very difficult to prove arson. And this is only anecdotal, my experience, but it's far more likely that a claim will be denied for a misrepresentation about some aspect of the claim um, as opposed to proof of arson itself. Just give you one very, very quick example. I had a case up in Maine. It was a little suspicious. Um, it was definitely an incendiary fire, but there was really no evidence of arson or, or, or any way to prove arson. But we took an examination under oath and asked a bunch of questions about economic motive. And the insured, for whatever reason, chose to misrepresent several aspects of its financial condition. No need to do so. You know, lied about how much food it had in the refrigerators. Um, Just simple things like that. But by the time they had made these various misrepresentations about their financial condition, there was no need to even talk about arson. There was enough to deny the claim, and and that's what happened. So in any event, that's what an EUO kind of looks like, and and that's the overall purpose. What happens if an insured refuses to to answer to, either to answer to to come to an examination under oath or refuses to answer a question during an examination under oath? So, if you if you just you know, EUO looks and feels a lot like a deposition, but really it's a uh, not a legal proceeding. It's it's not like a deposition where you're talking about evidence or trying to demonstrate what the evidence is, the EUO really is the making of evidence, right? It's part of the claims process. So um, the insured will have counsel often, not all the time, and the counsel can advise the insured not to answer at the, at the insured's own peril. Um, and if there is a refusal to answer a question, um, that very arguably is a failure to cooperate, and there's law in all 50 states that suggests that it can be a failure to cooperate to refuse to answer a question in an examination under oath. But as you might imagine, Mike, you know, not not all refusers are equal. If the insured says, hey, I'm not going to tell you where I was on the day of the fire, even if they invoke the Fifth Amendment, um, that is likely to, to bar the claim. On the other hand, if the insured refers to, you know, refuses to to tell you her favorite color, uh, that's not going to put the claim in jeopardy. But there's, as is always the case in life, a large 
gray area of in-betweens, issues like personal relationships. You know, what's too much to ask about a personal relationship? Civil and criminal history, um, financial inf- you know, information, uh, Swiss bank accounts, you know, business strategy. Th- th- this sort of gray area, the courts will apply a rule of reason to, and and sometimes it'll be viewed material, sometimes not. So takeaways on that are just from the insured's perspective, it's best to answer as many questions as you, you, you feel you can uh, that bear some relationship uh, to the claim, but there's also a pitfall from the insurer's perspective. You know, the EUO, as I mentioned earlier, is part of the claim. And questioning that gets too overly zealous or accusatory um, theoretically can lead to extra contractual exposure. So if you take an EUO, you got to recognize I'm there as an emissary of the insurance company. I'm going to be respectful. Uh, and I'm not gonna, you know, not gonna overplay the hand. Doesn't mean you can't be tough, but it does need, you just need to be respectful. So, um, from the insured and the insurer's perspective, those are the sort of the, the guiding rules. Donna, I, do you have something? And yeah, I wanted to ask you, uh, when it comes to that, what is the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in an EUO? Yeah, so, a lot of stuff. Like when I said earlier, it's kind of like the Wild West, sort of the you know uh, the last place where anything can happen and and, and eventually does. Th- that really is true. You know, you get in your car, you drive to to some place, and and you you show up to take an EUO, and you really don't know what you're going to run into. Um, there is no there's no judge to pick up the phone and call. Um, you're, you're sort of um, you're, you're sort of on your own. So. And again, while you you try to be respectful, and of course you always are, um, it, let's face it, right? These are questions about a set fire, oftentimes, and uh, th- just notwithstanding whatever extended courtesies you provide, they can it can all get <laughs> pretty tense. Um, I'll, I'll answer your question directly in a second, but I've been I've been I've been pushed, I've been elbowed, I've been cursed at, I've been mocked. I was once warned by a superintendent in Newark that I asked if I asked a certain question he was going to come across the table he wasn't going to go around the table he was going to come over the table <laughs> and you know of course I didn't ask that question until the last question and not after I went to the offices next door and I was at Cozen O'Connor at the time and told the three neighboring offices hey I'm I'm your partner from Philly and I'm the good guy if you start hearing some some noises in the room next door um, uh, and, and you know the truth came when I did ask the question he just smiled at me and, and that was that um, uh, but but I think the thing that the story that I would tell that that really kind of got to me um, was a situation in which the insured was a tennis court installation company, and I had obtained good information a couple of days before the EUO from a couple of employees that he had asked those employees to take a forty thousand dollar piece of equipment, break it in half, and then put it in the area. Uh, with the where the fire started uh, the next day, uh, so during the during the examination, I sort of walked him through that process, and it was a it was a pretty uncomfortable exchange. And I you know sort of presented it to him bit by bit, and he could, you could just see him you know losing his two hundred thousand dollar claim, and and um, uh, it wasn't. You know, wasn't angry or anything like that, but he just sort of had this this removed look in his eye. And then everybody left the room as we took a break. A break, and he he looked at me sort of quietly and said, um, "Hey, Bill, do you, 
you know what it likes you know what it feels like to kill a man and i i just sort of you know kind of looked at him and he said you know to 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 look into his eyes and you know watch the life fade from them and then he sort of explained that um all in self-defense, of course, while he was in the Merchant Marines, and, and coincidentally enough, in international waters, he told me this story how he had he had done that, and uh, it was chilling. Like he, it, you know, with somebody, people yell at you, and and uh, he, you know, let off a little steam. It's one thing, but um, uh, but by the time we finished the CUO, I was ready to go. So the the claim was denied. Nothing ever came of it. But that of all, after all the years, that's the. That's the confrontation that sort of sticks with me because I think it was the only time I was really, really chilled by one of those uh, experiences. Very unnerving. That, that's extreme, the day that Bill Stewart changed his name to Bill Smith. <laughs> right. That's right. That was uh, yeah. That was Bill Smith who was involved in that escapade. Yeah, that, that, that was a good idea there, Bill. But um, you know what? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been involved in I've been more in depositions, not in EUOs, but uh, depositions where crazy things happen, including uh, attorneys throwing things at each other and stuff. But um, yeah, I don't think you do that. Um, well, do um, adjusters take EUOs, or do they? Are they always done by an attorney? You yeah, certainly adjusters or other professionals can take EUOs. The, the provision does not require that an attorney take the EUOs. The reason why I think most EUOs are taken by attorneys is they're, they're so much like depositions. I mean, they look like them. They feel like them. They may be used in subsequent litigation. And, you know, for better or for worse, us lawyers become fairly well-skilled in that process. And we feel very comfortable in that process and, and, and presenting questions in that format. So I think... Um, I think attorneys are used for for that reason, and I guess so. The related question is: Okay, so that's who can take them. Who who's got to appear? Who, who who's got to be there? And um, there's EUO language, Mike, that says um, the named insur- in most policies or many policies. And again, obviously, you need to look at the particular policy, but the named insured mm-hmm. has to be there. Any other insured who is involved in the claim. And this is the part that's really intriguing. Any representative of the insured involved in the claim, so that could be theoretically a, a, if, if there's a deference, like, hey, I don't, I, I can't talk to you in numbers. You need to talk to my forensic accountant, or you need to talk to my public adjuster. Then, then those are the individuals who who must also um, appear. And uh, again, not to tell too many stories, but. Um, I, I, there is provision in the policy that allows the insurance to be separated. And I one time took a fire, the EU of a fire case of a husband and wife up in northwest corner of Pennsylvania. And we had them separated as per the policy. And the husband answered some questions that you could tell was damned if you do, damned if you don't questions. And he was very uncomfortable. And then it was time for the wife. And you could just you could just see it in his eyes that he was sort of reaching out to her like you know we need to talk you can't go until we do this and I wasn't going to let it happen uh, you know unless they made it and so objected to the meeting objected to having lunch said okay well we can have lunch let me if somebody's hungry let me start by asking her 15 minutes worth of questions just to establish some things and eventually they relented and his deposit his EUO was you know, 100% clean, or it wouldn't have given rise to any form of a declination, as was her EUO. The problem is they were hopelessly in contradiction of each other, 
and sort of cumulatively sunk their sunk their ships. So, in any event, you, you, that's I think a lot of policy allows that. So, um, go ahead, Donna. I know you're going to say something. Hello. Uh, okay. Well, the insurance companies usually. Um, the, the, what happens after the EUO? Uh, yeah, I, I again, I don't, I don't know that there's statistics on this, but I've probably done a hundred over the years, so I'm feel comfortable, again, sort of anecdotally, telling you what I, what, what usually happens. Uh, more often than not, after the EUO, there's a finding of coverage. Um, so presumably, an insurance company. You know, Donna talked about appropriate claims handling and transparent claims handling and telling the insured what's going on and you know keeping them in the loop and 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 treating them fairly and and I've been fortunate enough uh, to work for Donna enough over the years and work for other really good people over the years that they're just trying to get to the truth and trying to do the right thing so presumably if an insurance company um, knows they're going to decline and certainly I would recommend this if they know they're going to decline, then don't do an EUO. Don't, don't do an EUO just to bolster your case. That's not appropriate. If you've made a decision that there's not going to be coverage for whatever reason, um, then there should not be an EUO. So if you start with that presumption that EUOs are only done if you think that there's a possibility of coverage, then unless during that examination under a, some information is established that supports the declination, the status quo would continue to support coverage. And again, anecdotally, I would say about one-third of the time I've done an EUO, it's resulted in a denial or, or a withdrawal. About one-third of the time, it leads to maybe a reduction in the claim value, but the claim goes forward. And another third of the time, it simply reaffirms coverage as the insured had um, presented it. I think the one thing that surprised me over the years um, is the number of times an insured who seemed like, you know, there was, wouldn't be too much of a difficulty for them to come in and answer the questions, just wanted to tie some things down, withdrew the claim after the EUO notice. That, that happens um, more, more often than not. And if you'll, if you'll indulge me one, one last story here. So the, it's not just the, it's not just the insureds that have stepped away, surprisingly, uh, that have been head scratchers. There's a flip side to that, that there are so many insureds that they, you could, they'll need to say that the sky's orange to continue to proceed, and they'll just look up at the sky and say, it looks orange to me. I mean, they'll, they'll, even when the evidence gets to be overwhelming, they will continue on. I took an EUO once of a guy um, who had had multiple businesses and was making a rather large property damage and business interruption claim, and he was asserting that the reason the business interruption claim was extended was because the insurance company had not given him a, enough of an advance. So I was able to walk him through 13, and this is not an exaggeration, 13 different fires that he or his business had been involved in after he told me neither his business nor he had ever been involved in a fire. And then I was able to ask him if if you were if you needed this what did you do with the advance money? Well I don't remember. Well, isn't it true that you gave your 
wife a breast augmentation and gave yourself a neck lift. Is that is that a fact? And he said, yeah, that's a fact. I showed it to him. And I said, well, sir, if you, if you needed this money so desperately to keep the to keep the business going, why did you choose to give yourself cosmetic surgery? And he looked, just looked at me and said, well, Mr. Stewart, there's a very simple answer to that. I said, well, okay, what is it? And he said, well, my neck used to look like yours. So that, oh, that, was, his part, that was his parting shot. To this day, I'm still a little bit, you know, cognizant of my neck because of that comment. Um, but he was, he was, he was going to go down, but he was going to go down fighting, and I always have uh, great respect for that, uh, that parting shot. He, he knew it was over, but, um, but he was going to oh, go down God. fighting in any event. Well, I have a question for you. What if, they, what if uh, this is a, an examination under oath, so they have to swear, uh, and it's transcribed, is it not? And, and what if they lie? Well, um, it is a sworn statement. It doesn't have to be transcribed. It just needs to be sworn, but it almost always is transcribed and often videotaped. You know, there's, a, uh, there's nothing in policies that say it can be videotaped, um, most of the time, if you tell an insured they're going to be videotaped, um, the uh, the insured will say fine. Sometimes they push back and say, nope, that's not what the policy says. I don't agree to a videotape. Uh, and there's no case law on that. So I think the insured probably wins that argument. I think the insurer probably balks and just says, okay, fine, um, if, if that happens. But it is a sworn statement in proof of loss. And to the extent that your question implied that yeah. in addition to having um, ramifications for the claim and you know a misrepresentation that could lead to a lack of coverage for the claim and even the, the loss of the policy, um, could it have criminal ramifications or, or other ramifications? It, it clearly could. And there are um, anti-fraud, anti-arson statutes. All each state's a little bit different. That allows the insurance company to report those sorts of concerns without um, without concern that um, that they will somehow be responsible for defamation. They create um, certain safe harbors that allow that reporting because it's public policy that they, those sorts of matters do be reported. Uh, so yes, you can. You, you can really get into hot water if you're not careful. And I think, you know, sort of going back to a comment I made a little bit earlier, Mike, um, about people who, who get the notices and then decide that they're going to do other things with their life and, and not pursue the claim, uh, I think a lot of that may have to do with the, with the, uh, the criminal exposures that you and I were just speaking of. I have a quick yeah, question about that. Um, under the Arson Immunity Act, uh, when when those letters are received, do those transcriptions of the EOs, those also go to the public side, correct? Yeah, so, look, this is going to be the ultimate lawyer answer, but you have to look at the, the state statute to, to say for sure. But but the bottom line is, yes, usually the, you, you, your, the goal is to... Uh, you know, paint a picture, not not to advocate against the insured, but right. to provide full and complete information uh, to the public, to the to the um, uh, the agency that's in charge of you know enforcing the fact that we all tell the truth when we're under oath. Uh, so yes, usually the usually the pertinent 
portions at least of those materials um, will be transferred. And I'll do a quick disclaimer here that anything that's said uh, by Attorney Stewart is is not legal advice, and <laughs> he is not he's not here to to render legal advice. <laughs> Yeah, on behalf of Mr. Smith, who's much more conservative than I am, he, he, he appreciates that, keeping the firm out of jeopardy. Thanks for that, Don. I appreciate it as well. And, and, and Donna, beyond it, you wanted, I think you wanted to say something in response to one of Bill's comments, didn't you? So, yeah, I was just going to make two points, though. And, and one, I think, Bill, um, a, an EUO similar to a recorded statement could be used for impeachment purposes potentially later as well, correct? It could. I mean, the, the, the deposition is more likely to be used for impeachment because, it's a, again, it's a sworn statement, um, but you definitely can use both, and they are both used. And, and I wanted to emphasize the point that Bill was making earlier that this is evidence. So in your claims investigation, so to that extent, again, while many of the stories, you know, and, and information kind of, you know, refer to potential of arson or fraud or something, my customer-centric side must, you know, <laughs> kind of remind people that, that, again, an EUO can be very advantageous for the insured, and I know it doesn't sound like it necessarily from some of the, um, some, those particular stories, but it can in the instance, because it is evidence being created, that take, for example, an insured whose all of their records have burned in the fire or, or all of their records and documents are lost in a flood. Their testimony, if given in you know, appropriate and enough detail, could become the supporting uh, information a carrier could need or would need to, you know, consider payment of a claim. You know, if they can describe in, in detail uh, some of the information about their business and their business income or enough information, you know, about property, when they purchased it, where they purchased it. I, I mean, there's a, there's a fairness that has to take place in these instances where records are burned or lost you know, that what would be reasonable um, for an insured to support their, their claim of damages. So it could be a very efficient process um, for an insured in, in that regard. Uh, so it's not, again, all, all necessarily a, a purpose of, you know, just investigating um, SIU situations or potential fraud. And plus the other thing is it gets the parties together, and generally in a claim, anytime the parties are together for any reason, uh, that has value in, you know, in an opportunity to discuss, uh, to share, because again, you hear something over the phone or you hear something, you know, in the written word or you see something in the written word. And, you know, we all know how they, those things can be interpreted or misunderstood. So just the opportunity for the parties to get together you know, usually has a, a, again, a positive effect and potentially leads to resolution, you know, or a satisfactory and appropriate outcome uh, of the claim. Excellent point. (laughs) We're talking over each other. We only have a few minutes left. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, Just a quick thing. I emphasize I'm doing an expert witness testimony course here. I'm teaching it in Maryland. And one of the things that I say 
is the written word uh, in a deposition or an examination under oath does not have any energy to it. So to reinforce what Donna Viandis just said was that once people get to know each other and they see the energy, they see the interaction, um, the, the written word doesn't have any, any kind of emphasis to it. But if you see somebody, the truth has a ring to it. Uh, and you don't always read it on the page. You look at it, a person and see it. So that's where she is absolutely correct, where people get together, uh, they can see more. And you wanted to say something, Bill? Yeah, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I just couldn't concur with that more strongly. That That's exactly right. It is all, for everybody's perspective, but it's certainly a nurse to the benefit of the insured. It's it's like a fast forward. I mean, you, you spend several hours together, you know, probing for information, um, it, being able to evaluate credibility, being able to evaluate how formidable someone is going to be, and you can come out saying, hey, I just heard, and this is a this this all makes sense. It didn't seem like it would make sense, but it does. Or um, I'm not sure it makes sense, but boy, this guy you know is buttoned up. He 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 he's a makes a heck of a presentation, and so it's it's it really does lead. It can really quickly um, in, in an instance in which you know everybody's trying to do the right thing lead to an accelerated resolution of, uh, of the claim, and, and again, often does. Thank you so much. And we're down to uh, the end of our show, and I want to thank you both very much for all the great information. We'd love to have you back. This, these always go so quickly, and we do appreciate the time that you've spent with us today and with such good information. And for our listening audience, uh, we'd like to thank you for listening in and join us next week at Speaking of Fire. Yes, when you come back, thank you. back to Speaking of Fire. And thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on the show. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week. <laughs>